Amen. Well, good morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. Mark chapter 12, 1 to 12. And I invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. and They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. May he impress its eternal truths upon our hearts. Please be seated. Offer expiration dates seem to be everywhere. I can't seem to escape them. They're highlighted in my, the marketing emails that I get in my inbox. So they're in the text notifications that I receive at Costco. I'm motivated by them. You know, I buy snacks that I never otherwise would because they're on sale for a limited time. Uh, sometimes I purchase multiple bags of something that I don't actually need because that seemingly great offer is going to expire soon. In our world, we are used to expiration dates. $50 off before August 30th. Get your free birthday bunt cake for the next 14 days. Start your trial before September 30th. We understand that there are good offers that are to be had out there, but they won't usually last. And this is the idea that Jesus hammered home in Mark chapter 12. Jesus told a parable about how God had provided Israel with a very generous offer. And he had reminded them repeatedly to take advantage of it, but they had refused. 
So Jesus warned their leaders that God's offer would eventually expire. For the past month or so, we have been following Jesus in and around the temple in Jerusalem. This has been happening during the last week before his death, and it's now midweek. Jesus had already ridden into Jerusalem. He had cursed a fig tree. He had cleared out the temple marketplace, and he had dealt with questions recently about his authority from the chief priests and scribes and elders. They didn't appreciate the fact that he had come into the temple and treated it as his own. They didn't like him usurping their authority over the temple complex, and so they confronted him about it. They wanted to know about the nature and the source of his authority. But Jesus responded to them with a question of his own. And it was a question that revealed more about them than it did about him. He asked them whether the baptism of John was from heaven or from man. He wanted them to take a stance. He wanted them to either say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God. The ministry that John had, which pointed to Jesus being the Christ, was from God. He wanted them to to say that or to clearly deny it. But they refused to give an answer. They just said, we don't know. They were unwilling to lose the respect of the people, and they were unwilling to believe that Jesus could indeed be the Messiah of Israel. So Jesus decided not to give them a definitive answer to their initial questions because their response had revealed that they didn't really care about whether his authority was from God or not. They didn't want to submit to that authority. They just wanted Jesus gone. Their questions were a trap. They were trying to to gather evidence to use against him. Now, they had already rejected him as the Son of God. Knowing this, Jesus took the opportunity to elaborate upon some of the ramifications of their rejection. And Jesus made it clear to them that there are devastating consequences when you reject God and you reject all his kind overtures. And it's a warning to us that we must not reject kindness, God's kindness today because he won't offer it to us forever. There is an expiration date to the mercy and grace of God. God's patience will not last forever, and you will forfeit the privileges you have now if you continue to disregard God and his messengers. In the verses before us today, we'll find a parable and a promise. A parable and a promise that warn us against rejecting God and his beloved Son. So first, I want us to consider this parable of persistent rejection. We find this parable in verses 1 through 9, a parable of persistent rejection. Mark writes in verse 1 of chapter 12 that Jesus began to speak to them. And the dumb here are the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and, and the elders. These are the people who had just confronted Jesus about his authority, and Jesus spoke to them in parables. Now, in Matthew 21 and 22, we learn that Jesus told at least three parables during this time, but Mark and Luke only record this particular one for us about tenant farmers. And in a parable is a story that communicates truth through the use of familiar concepts. 
Jesus used parables to teach many important spiritual lessons. He excelled at using things in the world to point people back to God's redemptive plan. His parables were full of deep truths. And Jesus used parables to instruct his disciples in memorable ways. But the truths in those parables weren't always immediately apparent. His disciples often needed explanations, and Jesus would indulge them. He wanted his disciples to understand these tremendous spiritual realities. But Jesus' parables also served as a form of judgment against those who rejected him. Because these people were unwilling to believe Jesus and his words, Jesus often obscured the meaning behind his words through parables. Now, for a good part of Mark's gospel, we haven't encountered any parables. The last one we considered was all the way back in chapter 4. But here in chapter 12, Mark records an important parable that really hits at the heart of what Jesus was dealing with in Jerusalem that week. He was dealing with leaders who had rejected him. Leaders who had it out for him. And through this parable, Jesus laid bare their rejection. He told them how their rejection had and how it would play out. This is one of those parables that didn't need a ton of additional explanation. For verse 12 tells us that even the stubborn leaders of Israel were able to understand its implications. It is a parable about them. It's a parable about their rejection. And we see in verse 1 that it's a parable about their rejection of God's generous privileges. We see the rejection of God's generous privileges at the end of verse 1. The rejection of God's generous privileges. Jesus began the parable by explaining how a man planted a vineyard. The man here is God, and the vineyard is Israel. And we can say this confidently at the outset because Israel was described as a vineyard planted by God in the Old Testament. Now, I want you to navigate your way in your Bible to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. Okay, Isaiah, chapter 5. In that chapter, Isaiah records a song about God. Uh, Isaiah calls God his beloved. And Isaiah writes this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses here. He writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, that's God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine vat, wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Israel was God's vineyard. God invested in the people of Israel so that they might be fruitful for him, but they only produced bad grapes. 
And so God allowed them to be devoured and trampled upon. And we see the clear identification of this vineyard and God's hope for it in verse 7 of Isaiah 5. Look there with me, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was the vineyard of God. And God had planted it so that it might produce justice. And it might produce righteousness. Now, go back to Mark chapter 12. And look again at verse 1. Notice how Jesus used the same imagery of Isaiah 5. Jesus said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the vine press and built a tower. Just like in Isaiah, this vineyard was turnkey. It was all ready to go. There was a fence to provide protection against thieves and wild animals. There was a pit for the wine press. These presses were, were usually hewn of solid rock composed of two vats. One vat was for pressing the grapes, and it was connected by a channel to a lower vat where the juice or wine was collected. There was also a tower, maybe 15 or 20 feet high. This could have been used for shelter or storage, but it was mainly a lookout, a place to make sure that the vineyard could be observed and guarded. The point is that this vineyard had everything you needed to produce some great fruit and tasty wine. But there's a difference between the vineyard here in Mark 12 and the one in Isaiah 5. Look at the end of verse 1 of Mark 12. Jesus said that the owner of this vineyard leased it to tenants and went into another country. This last phrase highlights for us the difference in emphasis between this parable and the prophecy of Isaiah. Here the focus is less on the vineyard itself, but rather on the tenants of the vineyard. In this parable, the owner had entrusted his vineyard to farmers, and we learn that he went away into another country. Luke adds that he went away for a long while, potentially because it took, usually took four to five years for crops to mature. And so these tenant farmers were put in charge in the meantime. They were given the responsibility of managing this vineyard. And at the time, this was a common arrangement. Wealthy landowners had consolidated much of the land in the area, and it was a common practice to lease it out. In this arrangement, the tenant was responsible for paying an agreed-upon amount of the produce to the owner. And the allegory should be clear. Israel was a people who had been provided for in every way. God had planted them and fulfilled every promise to bless them. He had made them into a great nation. He had given them a land. He had fenced them in and protected them from enemies. He had richly supplied them with his law. The leaders of Israel had every opportunity and reason to be fruitful and spiritually successful. They had been funded by the greatest venture capitalists. He provided everything they needed. But like any good owner or investor... He was expecting a return. Church, just like Israel was blessed with tremendous privileges, so are you. We don't have living prophets anymore, but we have the scriptures. We have 66 books that contain the the very revelation of the God of heaven. 
And we have Christ, and we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we have access to so many additional resources, sermons, and commentaries, and dictionaries, and Bible store studies to help us. And we live in a nation with religious freedom. The only thing preventing us from meeting with other saints is usually ourselves. And this is a church, not without its flaws, but it's a place where the Word of God is taught, and we try hard to do things the, the, the way the Bible teaches us to do the thing, and to do them. And many of you have grown up in stable families where the gospel is treasured and applied, and some of you have grown up attending Christian schools where the philosophies of the world are not taught as dogma and the the values of Christ are upheld. And many of you have been tremendously blessed through Christian fellowships in college. And the majority of you hold a U.S. passport, which will allow you to travel to most places in the world for the gospel. You too have been placed by God in an abundant vineyard. But once you're inside... It can be easy to forget all the privileges around you. You realize how privileged you are? Like a grizzled Google veteran, you can start to take your benefits for granted. You have access to all the spiritual food you want, but you just taste the scriptures. You don't feast upon them anymore. You're tempted by other employers or masters who promise you what seems like a better deal in the short term. You forget that the people around you are extremely gifted and can help you. You stay in the comfort of your own building and don't venture out to the many other places you have access to where tremendous work can be done. This is what happened to the leaders of Israel. Yes, they were given responsibilities to manage the vineyard of God, but they were also given many, many privileges Yet they rejected those privileges because they failed to use what God had provided for them. They thought they could be successful on their own. Christian, don't be like those leaders. Don't take the privileges God has given you for granted. To varying levels, you too have been given stewardship by God. He has placed you where you are so that you can be fruitful. So that you can bring your own offering to him of justice and and righteousness and good works. Don't reject the generous privileges of God. Now this parable continues. And beginning in verse 2, we see that the leaders of Israel not only rejected God's privileges, but they also rejected his messengers. And we move from the rejection of God's generous privileges to the rejection of God's many messengers the rejection of God's many messengers. Jesus said in verse 2 that when the season came, the man sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So after some time, the owner of the vineyard sent one of his servants to collect from those tenants some of the fruit that his vineyard had produced. The servants in this parable represent the prophets. And this is supported by the fact that in the Old Testament, the prophets of God were often referred to as his servants. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, God said to the people of Judah, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets. 
sent them to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. Later in Jeremiah 25, 4, Jeremiah said, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. And this is what we see in Mark 12. The farmers of this vineyard did not listen. They did not incline their ear to hear what this servant had come to tell them. Instead, they took the servant, this messenger of the vineyard owner, and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And verse 4 says that the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And in a culture where shame was really the, the worst thing that you could experience, this was particularly egregious. The mistreatment of these servants was worsening. And and verse 5 says, He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. This This is such a sad parable. It's hard to comprehend the actions of these tenants. But what is also hard to comprehend is the great persistence and patience of the owner. The dogged forbearance of God with the leaders of Israel is remarkable. Over and over again, the prophets whom he sent were rejected by them, but he just kept sending them in hopes that their message would be received. And and that is much of the Old Testament. We know that Elijah was driven into the wilderness by King Ahab and Jezebel. We know that Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, was stoned in the days of King Joash. We know that Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. We know that a prophet named Uriah was killed by the sword in the days of King Jehoiakim. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, the exiles who returned to the the land of Israel after all their sin and, 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 and all their disobedience confessed this about their forefathers. They said, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you, God, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. This was the history of Israel. Their leaders had a long track record of mistreating and even killing the prophets of God. And this continued into the New Testament. God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, but he too was rejected by the leaders of Israel and allowed to be beheaded by the Romans. God isn't a take-it-and-leave-it kind of God. He didn't even operate on a three-strike system with Israel's leadership. He gave them chance after chance after chance. Because he is patient and long-suffering. He desires that people respond to the messengers of his word. If you aren't a Christian, I want you just to think about your life for a moment. Think about how many times God has tried to get his message of redemption across to you. Maybe he sent your parents or a family member to take you to church. And pray for you. Maybe he sent a Sunday school teacher or, or a youth leader to faithfully teach you truths about Jesus. Maybe he sent a friend to invite you to read the Bible with him or her. 
Maybe he sent you a message through a song on the radio or even a video on, on YouTube. I imagine that this is not the first time that you have been exposed to the message of Christianity. Think about how God has sent you many messengers. But how have you responded to them? Do you realize that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance? This is a parable of persistent rejection because the leaders of Israel rejected God's privileges and they rejected his messengers. And ultimately, they rejected his son. And we see the rejection of God's beloved son in verses 6 through 8. The rejection of God's beloved son. In Jesus' parable, the vineyard owner didn't give up hope. Verse 6 says that he still had one other, a beloved son. And readers of Mark would know immediately that Jesus was talking about himself because he was the one whom the father had called his beloved son at his baptism in chapter 1, verse 11, and at his transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 7. Jesus, the beloved of God, was sent by his father with the hope that he would be respected. The vineyard owner said, they will respect my son. And this is the boundless and immense love of God. He is willing to go to the greatest lengths to win his people back. This is the sweet stupidity of his grace. It borders on the absurd. It does not want to give up. It is willing to do the unthinkable for the sake of his vineyard. It is willing to offer his son for the sake of his people. But these tenants, these leaders of Israel would not be swayed even by his son. They they said to one another, this is is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. That's cold. That's calculated. These men thought they were clever. They had gotten away with murder before. They hadn't yet felt the the consequences for rejecting the, the many messengers who had come before. They had only experienced the owner's patient mercy. So they thought that if they just killed the son, they would be free. His inheritance would be theirs. Perhaps they thought that the owner had already died and the land would somehow eventually become theirs since they were tending to it and there would be no other heir around to claim it. These men were willing to do anything to get out from under the ownership and authority of the man above them. And the religious leaders of Israel were just like them. They were willing to do anything to try to eliminate the authority of Jesus over them. They were all about themselves. They had brought corruption into the house of God. They had turned the worship of God into a business to line their pockets. They had come to see the nation of Israel as theirs and not God's. God had made them stewards of his people, but they wanted more. They wanted to be the rulers of his people. And in their foolishness, they took the son, verse 8 says they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. This is what happened when the leaders of Israel had Jesus taken out of the city of Jerusalem and crucified. These tenants rejected God's privileges. They rejected his messengers and they rejected his son. 
Despite God's kindness and his patience and his immense love, these tenants rebuffed all his efforts to get them to provide him with good fruit out of his vineyard. So his gracious offer to them finally expired. In verse 9, we see that these men would be rejected by God himself. And so this parable shows us not only the rejection of God's generous privileges and his many messengers and his beloved son, but it also shows us the rejection of God's rebellious people. The rejection of God's rebellious people in verse 9. Jesus asked there, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Simple. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. These tenants, these leaders would be destroyed. They had their chance, and they had their second, and their third, and and their fourth chances, and, and some more chances after that. But they persisted in their rebellion, and so God had to act and bring the severity of his judgment upon him, or upon them. And they would be destroyed. They would no longer enjoy the benefits of God's grace. They would be separated from the people of God in the place that he had prepared for them. But notice, notice that God didn't destroy the vineyard. He destroyed the tenants, he destroyed the leaders, but he kept the vineyard. And he transferred the management of that vineyard to others. Now, who are these others? Well, the vineyard is still the people of God. And we know that with the coming of Christ, it's no longer just Israel now. The people of God are Jew and Gentile. It's the church. But the managers of this vineyard would no longer be the Sanhedrin or the old Jewish leaders. The managers would now be the apostles. And in Matthew 21, 41, it says that those given this responsibility would be those who will give him, that is God, the fruits in their seasons. The apostles of Jesus would now be entrusted with this responsibility. And so on the night before his death, Jesus would spend time with them in an upper room and he would help them to better understand the stewardship. They would be given everything they needed to be successful. But this was all shocking and stunning to the people who heard Jesus speak. They they were following along with him as he was telling this parable, but the, the end of it, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 20 that when they heard this, they they shouted, Surely not! No way! They couldn't believe what would happen to the Son. They they, they couldn't believe that the whole Jewish leadership structure would be upended. They, They couldn't fathom the severity of the consequences that were coming upon the religious leaders of Israel. These leaders thought that they had it made. They thought that by challenging Jesus and eventually by crucifying him, they would be able to avoid his message and his ministry and his authority. But they were wrong. The Jewish leadership system would collapse and would be replaced by another. And that's because you can't get away with rejecting God forever. The parable of persistent rejection teaches us that you can only reject the kindness of God for so long Eventually, God will reject you. But Jesus didn't end his lesson there. He went on. And in verses 10 through 12, we find a promise. A promise of providential reversal. After his parable of persistent rejection, Jesus provided a promise 
of providential reversal. In his gospel, Luke tells us that after he told this parable and the people responded, surely not, tells us, he tells us that Jesus looked directly at the people he was speaking to. It was a penetrating gaze, and he asked them the question that's recorded in Mark 10. Mark chapter 12, verse 10. He asked them, have you not read the scripture? Don't you know what God's word says? And then he directed them to Psalm 118. I want you to turn there with me for a moment. Jesus knew that the people knew this psalm, Psalm 118. He, he knew that they were familiar with it. Psalm 118. Jesus knew that they had read this. Why? You need to turn there so you can see this. Jesus knew that the people that he was speaking to knew this scripture because they were shouting out verses from it when he ruled into Jerusalem a few days before. Look at verse 26 of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 26. It says there, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that ring a bell to you? This is what the people shouted in Mark chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! They had already attributed the truths in this psalm to him. Now, back up a few verses in Psalm 118 and look at verse 22. In their exuberance to usher Jesus into Jerusalem, in their, in their excitement over what they thought he would, he would do to free them, this is what they had overlooked. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It is these verses that Jesus quoted after the people were shocked by his parable in Mark 12. As he stood in the temple, he wanted the people to understand that he was like a wrongly shaped or, or wrongly sized stone that had been rejected by the builders. But he would eventually become the most important stone. He would become literally the head of the corner. And that could mean the capstone or the keystone, but most likely it meant the cornerstone, the foundation stone upon which the whole structure of the temple or this whole structure of a building would be built. Although he would be rejected, Jesus would eventually be exalted to a place of highest importance. He would be beaten. But his wounds would prove to, be, prove to be healing. He would hang on a cross in shame. But his suffering would be, bring glory to his name. He would be killed, but his death would redeem. He would be buried, but he would rise again to bring us resurrection life. Psalm 118 held the promise of a stunning reversal. The Messiah who rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and blessing would earn those shouts by being rejected so that he could redeem. And though it may have seemed like the leaders had temporarily outwitted God, he was still control, in control. It was God's plan to make the rejected stone the cornerstone. 
And we can turn back to Mark 12 and look again at verse 11, which is that final part of his quotation from Psalm 118. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Wicked, rebellious, prideful leaders can stand in the way of the Messiah. They can try to thwart his ministry to preserve their own, but Jesus will still be exalted no matter how hard they try. This parable shows us the wisdom of God in storyboarding both the rejection and the exaltation of his son. Even when the church today is plagued by leaders who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing, we can be encouraged that God is doing a marvelous thing. In the midst of greed and rebellion and sin among his people, he will not be deterred in receiving glory and glorifying his son. And this was all part of his providential plan. John Piper has defined God's providence as the wisdom and, or the wise and purposeful sovereignty of God. When we say that God is sovereign, we focus on his right and ability to do whatever he wills. The sovereignty of God refers to his control and power. But the providence of God refers more to his wise design in arranging the events of this world. Providence shows us God's wisdom, and it shows us his purpose. And in the providence of God, he allowed these leaders to reject and kill and shame his son in order that we might be saved and God might be praised. Because at the cross, God's marvelous grace and kindness met his severe justice and holiness in in explicably wonderful ways so that sinners like us might be redeemed. The Lord Jesus will be exalted. The beloved Son will be beheld by all. One day all will respect him. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do not harden your heart against him. Don't be like these leaders. Look at how pitifully they responded to all this. Look at verse 12. Instead of responding in repentance, the leaders of Israel were seeking to arrest him, but fear the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. These leaders got Jesus' message. This was one parable that they did understand. Jesus made it clear to them that they would be judged by God for the rejection of him. But because the leaders still feared the people who held Jesus in high esteem, Mark writes that they left him and went away. And this means that they missed yet another opportunity to turn to Christ. Jesus is God's beloved Son. He came for you. He came to be respected by you. He came that you might receive him. And in the providence of God, he came to be rejected for you, to die for you. Don't reject him today. Build your your life upon him. Make him the cornerstone of your life. There is an offer of grace that is available to you that has not expired yet. I don't know when it will, but it's probably sooner than you think. Repent now. Give up your rejection. Give up your rebellion. Don't be on the wrong side of things when when everything gets reversed. Turn to Jesus now.
in faith receive his work on the cross for you, hope in his resurrection life, and follow him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are humbled and amazed by your patience and your love. Though like the leaders of Israel, we often want to reject you. We want to reject your authority over us. And we often reject the messengers that you send our way. You continually send more. You continually show us your grace and your mercy. And you are long-suffering with us, and we thank you for it. But Father, we know that one rejection can lead to another, and our hearts can become hardened. So keep us from having hearts that are hardened against your Son, and against your Word, and against your message. Oh, Father, help us to, to realize and embrace the privileges you have given us. Help us to be thankful for them. And help us to be fruitful because you have given us every resource that we need. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. As our service comes to a close, let me encourage you with a benediction from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all of God's people said, Amen. We'll have a time of silent reflection now. Then our service will end when the music plays. We'd love for you to stick around, but just encourage you to make your way outside to our courtyard or even to the fellowship hall and have conversation there. I do note that we have Children's Sunday School and Fundamentals of the Faith at 11 o'clock upstairs. And we also have Sunday evening fellowship tonight at 5.30. Bring dinner then to enjoy with the rest of the church family. Thank you.